Welcome to another edition of the Balanced Blues Brothers Podcast. The season may be over, but in a jam-packed summer, there is plenty to play for. We've already seen Christian Pulisic lift the coveted CONCACAF Nations League. We've had World Cup qualifiers, and we have the Gold Cup coming in the pipeline. But right now, there are two competitions happening, Copa America and more relevant Chelsea, because we have far more players in it, the Euros. With such a large contingent, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the Euros. So round by round, we'll be giving you podcasts, giving our usual balanced views with a little bit of Chelsea tint about the fixtures. I'm Travis Tyler. I'm joined by Ola and RJ. Travis Flock is taking a well-deserved vacation. And without further ado, let's get at it. So Group A was the first group. It had Italy with Giorgino and Emerson and Ampadu for the Welsh. Italy arguably has looked like the team of the tournament thus far with their 3-0 victory over Turkey. And Wales and Switzerland settled for a pretty standard 1-1 draw. What did you guys make of these games? First up, from my point of view, hello, Travis and Ola. It's great to link up again. It's felt like it's been a little while. In terms of my thoughts on the Group A proceedings, how they've unfolded thus far, it's pretty much how I've sort of predicted it, to be honest with you, because during my preview episode I do on a on an Australian-based football podcast, it's football thing, I predicted an Italy victory, albeit 2-0 at the time. So a 3-0 was a bit of a sweetener at the end. But I have to try to remove my bias aside I thought it was a well-deserved victory for the Azuri in the end. I'm not sure if three-goal margin was suitable, but at least more than one in the end. So totally control from start to finish. I felt similarly to Chelsea in many respects that they were dominating a lot of the ball and territory, but were up against a very resolute and compact and organised Turkey defence who were playing in blocks of four and five at a time which made it very difficult for Mangini's men to try to find the clear-cut opening. But in the off occasion where they did, particularly in the first half, they just lacked that cutting edge in front of goal, which sounds very familiar to us as Chelsea fans. But from a Chelsea lens, Jorginho had a really strong game. And I know that I know that Immobile got the goals to help him get going. I know players like Barella, who I think is going to be a low-key shout to get player of the tournament if Italy go deep. It was the efficiency of Jorginho that really made things tick over. It's that metronomic state that he brings to the team. And some of the stats that from Squawk are like the most interceptions for, the most tackles made three, 100% of take-ons completed. But then there's the 94% pass accuracy that backs up the efficiency claim. But for me, it's the three chances created that gives me a nice compliment that he wasn't just a defensive contributor, but he also had some very important attacking contributions, which unfortunately his teammates didn't capitalise on the time. But an all-round complete performance from Chelsea's Italian Regista. Now, in terms of the other game in the Group A, Wales and Switzerland, I thought similar actually to Italy-Turkey, but to a lesser extent, Switzerland were largely in control of the play, but Wales actually had a few moments and started off the brighter of the two teams, but were more strategic in terms of their approach and when to choose to attack the game. Whereas Turkey, I thought, 
were very much arm wrestled out of it by Italy. But overall, I thought that game there had a lot less natural talking points from, from my perspective. I did think that the key takeaway I took from the Wales-Switzerland game is that I reckon second spot's very much up for grabs in this group. I still think Italy are going to walk their way through it. Arrogant as that may sound, they just look the goods. And I, unless firing some shocks, some shock deviation, the second match is very much up for grabs. And I think that even though it ended one all, it could have easily went either way because albeit playing two different styles of play, a one all result was probably the fair one in the end, but it could have went either way. So, yeah, that's my Group A analysis. What did you guys think? I mean, you said everything I was going to say. And I just wanted to highlight Jorginho's performance. The system he played in with Italy, and he has played as the deepest midfielder for them several times, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I, he seems quite comfortable there. And not just because of his passing, but, I mean, he led the whole, all players on the pitch from, from both sides in, in tackles plus interceptions. It just shows that, you know, he's, he's an actual defensive midfielder. He's not just a, a player who doesn't have any defensive abilities. And yeah, I think he has been the, now I, I wouldn't say that yet, but he was definitely a standout and I was quite impressed. In fact, when I was watching that match for, the first, I can't remember how many minutes. I didn't notice him. I realized I had not seen Jorginho yet. And I was wondering, well, if as the DM you if as a DM you don't you're not noticeable, then it can only be a good one. And then I started to notice him. There was one particular point where he dribbled, you know, two, three players, and then yeah, I I I really enjoyed I really enjoyed Jorginho's performance. Is he has been given a a platform to play to the best of his abilities and the two central midfielders beside him really helped him out. He was outstanding in that game. Outstanding. I, I wasn't able to see these matches because, you know, Travis Flock is on vacation this week. I was on vacation last week. So I missed the first part of the, this round, but I only saw rave reviews about Georgino's performance. And real quickly, do you guys think Thomas Tuchel might get any ideas from that? Maybe using him in a 4-3-3 similar to Italy? Uh, I wouldn't doubt it, but I, I think Thomas Tuchel knows also about Jorginho's strengths and his weaknesses. It explains why he, you know, he he changed the system around. Though that, the system might have had more to do with the, 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 the centre-backs and the central midfielders, but I think it's both, really, because we saw Lampard try to create a functioning situation out of the center, the defense and the midfield, and the defense was working for a while, and then we started considering goals. And I can't blame him for changing things around because I mean, as a manager, when things are going wrong, you have to do something about it. But I think we also have to take into consideration that they played Turkey, and Turkey standout players with their center backs, and even on the day, their center backs were not doing well. So I think. This match is as much the opponent as it was Jorginho. I wouldn't, you know, go and say, oh, he's the defensive midfielder we need. I think if we are going to go to the far at the back, we need another defensive midfielder because we would come up against more stressful teams to play against in the Premier League. And we've seen teams target Jorginho in, in, in the past. We've seen them try to, you know, nullify him and I've succeeded on several occasions. So I, I think 
I know we won't be playing Turkey national team type teams in the Premier League, so I don't think this should give Tupul any any ideas. He was he did have an outstanding game, but I think we'll be getting ahead of ourselves too. We will say, oh, we don't need rice. Why would we need rice? Why would we need another game? And just adding on to that, he's the system as well as the the natural style of play Mancini has brought to Italy. And the fact that he's got complementary players like a more attacking-minded Barilla and even Locatelli had a strong game in that midfield, it'll be interesting to see once, if Italy progress through to the deeper stages and Marco Verratti comes in, just how potent that midfield can be. But yeah, a very good game from Jorginho, I agree. Group B's up next. Uh, We had Andreas Christensen for Denmark as the only Chelsea representative, and Belgium has quite a few former Chelsea players and maybe some future Chelsea players to keep an eye on. But um, this group was a bit marred by what happened with Christian Eriksen, his collapse, the emergency medical attention he required on the field and everything that went down around that. Um, He is recovering. In the meantime, Denmark pretty much had no choice but to finish the game the same day, and they ended up losing 1-0 to Finland. Elsewhere, Belgium defeated Russia 3-0, but obviously the Ericsson story is the story of this group. So what did you guys make of that as it happened? Uh, Again, I wasn't able to see this one. I only got a ton of notifications on my phone and don't have the full picture of what happened. So can you guys just walk through that? I actually wasn't watching the match, but when I... Decided to check the score. I saw that the match had been suspended, so I, I went online to find out what, what went wrong. First of all, I tuned into the, the place where I would have watched it, and I just saw the Euros 2020 logo. And, you know, so I went online, and I saw Ericsson trending, so I searched through, and I saw that, you know, I, I saw he had, he had collapsed, and it was quite scary because I had problems uh, very complicated because the, the difference between surviving and not surviving can be, you know, can be a split second, can be a second, can be two seconds. And there were players who, who have had a similar problem in the past. And the, you know, Fabrice Mamba was his heart stopped for 78 minutes on the pitch. It's, it's a miracle he even he even survived. Uh, there was the Abdelnuri guy of Ajax, I think, who was in a coma for 32 months and made a full recovery. But I mean, it would have been, it would have been tragic if any of that had been Ericsson's case because who is going to wait 78 minutes for us to be hearing, oh, his heart is still not, it's still, it's still out. 60 minutes later, his heart is still out. There's only one thing we would have been thinking. So. That that was quite, you know, nobody should have to nobody should have to go through that, trying to, you know, do his job. Nobody should have to have to go through that. And about the the reshuttling of the match, I agree that it was it was unfair on the on the Denmark players. At the same time, I, I think the reshuttling of the of the match would have been a lot more complicated than, you know than we would we would have liked. I mean, it, it's fair that they should have given them some days, but the whole tournament is, is, is planned in a certain way, and it's, 
it's 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 a bit difficult to reschedule matches, especially in conditions like that that don't happen often. And what I feel is in difficult scenarios like that, it has to be managed in a should I say sustainable way so that you don't have to so that you don't you you can do something that you can implement again if it happens again. Not that you know we if two people if two people have a cardiac arrest in a, in a tournament, then there, there are big problems to, to worry about and the tournament will probably be called off altogether. If it's more than that, then you can imagine. But I just feel the UEFA didn't have as much leeway as it seems. All right, RJ, you go ahead and take up from that. Yeah, sure. So now I think listening to some of Vola's sentiments, I agree. Watching that at the time, so I caught it afterwards. I didn't catch it live either, but what obviously catching up with all the images and the video, et cetera, is quite confronting for obvious reasons. So not just from a, obviously a football standpoint, but just on a basic human level. And, and I totally agree with Ola. On the one hand, we need to balance the human, very human considerations of the trauma and all of the challenges of seeing what's happened to one of a world-famous footballer, a teammate, a family member. But on the flip side, there's those commercial considerations that need to be managed and the challenges of, of managing those logistics of trying to reschedule matches in an already congested scheduling list is, is quite difficult. So I think everybody involved made the best of a bad situation. And unfortunately, it probably affected Denmark in terms of the result, given that they were playing with a very big obstacle in front of them, which makes their chances now progressing a lot more difficult. But that said, I suppose the cliche of sometimes there's more important things in life couldn't be truer here. But look, ultimately during that game, Denmark will hopefully take some heart in the fact that A, Number one priority, Christian Eriksen's in a stable condition and feeling better. But B, that they'll put those traumatic events behind them and use that to try to spur them on for the rest of the group. Whether or not it's enough to help them progress, it's, well, time will tell. But overall, these are sorts of things where, as a tournament planner, you can only you can come up with a reasonable proxy of disruption-type events. And, yes, you can picture someone getting injured or something quite substantial as one of your scenarios, but until you see it play out, it's something that's a very, very low likelihood, high-impact event, and this is what that was. So everybody involved, from the referees to the team players to the medics, this is a kind of a scenario where, as, as bizarre as it sounds, they did a fantastic job in managing what could have been quite a crisis event. So I think it's important to highlight, yeah, it was a terrible event, but at the same time it could have been a lot worse and therefore a lot of credit and praise needs to go to those who handled the incident response in such a coordinated way. So well done. In terms of the other group, though, the other team, the Belgium versus Russia game, I thought 3-0 was, again, a little bit harsh on, on Russia, to be frank with you. I thought... Yeah, Belgium were good for their win. And I thought, like I like how you mentioned, Travis, maybe a former slash potential blue in Romelu Lukaku. I know that's who you're referring to. Again, as the older he gets, he's like a fine wine. He gets better with age. And 
His second goal in particular to cap off a 3-0 win was a very composed finish where they released him in, he got in behind, and without hesitation, first touch or second touch, I believe it was, he just rolled, strolled the pass into the bottom corner. It was just, it was a typical goal that I thought, oh, this is something Chelsea could use and crave, someone that can just have that composure and finish off a really sharp, fast counter-attack. So, yeah, he was a standout player for obvious reasons for me in that game. But, and I, I am quite keen to see how Belgium progress in this tournament because if they do, he's going to be key to their chances to take them to the next level. The only thing I really have to add about that group is, you know, if you can get CPR trained, go get CPR trained. You never know when you might need it. And you never know when you might just be that slight difference. Group D is probably the group most of us have been looking at as Chelsea fans. Uh, it's got England with Mason Mount, Ben Chilwell, and Reese James all looking to bring it home. Uh, opposite of them was Mateo Kovacic, and that was a rematch of the last World Cup, but England pulled ahead this time and got the win they needed. Elsewhere, there was Billy Gilmore, Scotland, minus Billy Gilmore, that lost to the Czech Republic after Patrick Schick scored one of the best goals you'll ever see. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Jack Hendry tries again, but it could be costly because it's the Czech Republic on the break. And Patrick Schick has scored again. You have to just admire the vision, the skill to, to pull it off. An absolutely magnificent goal. Worthy to grace the occasion that is today. But more focused on England here. Southgate only started Mason Mount. So what do you guys make of how England started the tournament and how we might see Chelsea players feature, not just for England, but for everyone? I, I think the, first of all, I was surprised when the reports came out that Southgate was starting Trippier at left back. I would never understand that one. I won't even try to pretend that, that, that I want to. I mean, I, I'm sure he has his reasons. He's, 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 a, he's a professional manager of, of a national team like England, so he definitely has his reasons, but I just don't understand it. And I don't think Trippier played well enough to justify the decision, and, you know, it, it wasn't justified. Yes, they won, and Mason Mount was, was very good. Up steps Mason Mount. Good try. Really good attempt. It had to be perfect, though. He created one big chance, though it was asking a bit much of Hurricane, but it was a very good chance nonetheless. He, he, he performed his role in the team well, his role of linking up the play and being the anchor on that left-hand side. He did his, his, his role very well. And they played against a, a stubborn Croatia team, though on the day, Croatia were not very good weren't very good at all. And we we all expected to see either resumes of Ben Chilwa or both. But as it as it turned out, it was only one of the player of our players we saw. I don't think Kovacic played that well. The midfield was was mainly dominated by by Rice and, and Phillips. But Croatia were, were just 
not that good across across the board. I wouldn't criticize Kova too much because playing central midfield is, is difficult, especially when you are playing against a team that has a lot of energy like like Rice and, and Philip. So it was it was a tough, it was tough for, for all the Croatian midfielders involved. He didn't make four tackles though, which you know, credit to him for that. But he Mount was definitely one of the better Chelsea players on the day. As for the as for the sorry, as for the Scotland game, I, I saw the lineup and I knew that Scotland didn't stand a chance. I don't know anyone in Scotland who can who can give them as much of a fighting chance than Sutek, Sheikh, and and Kufal. Kufal has been has been brilliant in the Premier League. I think he plays for West Ham as a right back and he has been he has been brilliant. I knew he would give a lot of problems to, to Scotland. I don't think Scotland have enough firepower to deserve a, a chance against that Czech Republic side. To be fair, it's only those three players I recognize them. But those three players were, were good enough to, to grab the game by the scruff of the neck, if you permit me to use that cliche. I don't think Gilmer would have made that much of a difference. And again, it's easy to say that when he didn't, when he didn't play. I saw comments like, why would they have Gilmer and not play him? Lampard had Gilmer, didn't play him that much. Tukul had Gilmer, didn't play him that much. So it shouldn't be that surprising that Gilmer is in a squad and is not being played that much. Besides, we knew that Gilmer wasn't going to be a starter for Scotland. Yeah, it's interesting. From the Scotland-Czech Republic game point of view, apart from the worldie from Schick, and even his first goal was a beautiful, was a really beautifully placed hitter. So both goals were superbly taken. I agree with Oler in the sense of we all want to see the Scottish Iniesta Billy Gilmore playing, but at the end of the day, I don't think his profile of player was what was the difference in what Scotland were lacking in this game. I thought, to Scotland's credit, they came out with a lot of energy, a lot of intensity for really putting an experienced Czech Republic, and that's the word I want to highlight for Czech Republic, they use their experience to help navigate the early onslaught and the periodic waves of attack from the brave Scottish. But ultimately, like with like with most games of football, it comes down to taking your chances. And, and I think that's what the captain, Andy Robertson, said after the match is that they wanted to come out and start brightly. And, and they did put their money where their mouth was. They, they looked purposeful. They just couldn't quite capitalise on their early momentum. And... The Czech Republic, with the experience in the likes of um, Suchek, who I thought played reasonably well despite being pretty much man-marked out of the match. And, of course, she could have got a hat-trick. And realistically, he his third chance, he really should have scored because it was the easiest, but he was unable to get past the goalkeeper at the end. But, look, overall, I thought Scotland's midfield were pretty good. McTominay had a strong game. I thought McGinn was really good for Scotland. He, so. For people to turn around from a Chelsea point of view and say, well, where's Gilmore? It's like, well, you can't really criticise Scotland's midfield performance because they were winning the arm wrestle. It's the fact that, you know, again, Schick scored some unbelievable goals. Scotland failed to convert. Even Andy Robertson, he had shades of Emerson Palmieri versus Atletico, except for he couldn't convert his chance. So that's the difference between a Champions League winner and, a, and an aspiring Champions League winner in Liverpool players. But all jokes aside... I do think we will see Gilmore given a chance 
next game, not the start, but I think he'll get some minutes just to change up a little bit. But overall, an interesting game between Scotland and Czech Republic. In the England-Croatia match, however, the high-profile match, I was disappointed not to see our defenders or wing-backs in James and Chilwell not be given their opportunities because I know England's stacked with quality, but I have to be trying to be as honest and objective as possible. Kyle Walker and Trippier did not look like the better players in that team. I felt, if anything, players like Calvin Phillips were superb. I felt Mason Mount had a really strong game, had some really key passes, had Raheem Sterling not be more wasteful in front of goal. I felt even Harry Kane was relatively quiet, so, but that's probably just a good work from Croatia's standpoint to keep him out of the game. But again, I'm, if I'm a Chelsea fan, I'd probably feel a little bit disappointed that Chilwell and James didn't get some minutes in this game. I dare say that they will next game onward because, again, what I saw from Walker and Trippier, that's not enough for me to warrant their automatic start next game unless they want to keep Walker and push him up the field a little bit and put James tucked in behind if they go with that three at the back, as I, I suspect. Mason Mount, for me, cements his start there. That's fine. But overall, that England-Croatia game, I agree with Ola's assessment. Kovacic didn't flourish in that match, but I think that's just a function of the team getting swamped by a very fast-paced and high-octane England side. Croatia tried to bank on their smarts and experience with that Brozovic, Mondrich, Kovacic midfield, which is quite strong. They had a few moments. Let's not get it twisted. They did slightly edging learning possession, but it just felt like there were moments there that if they didn't capitalise on their very acute windows of opportunity, England could have won by more goals. But in the end, it was a fair result. Kovacic didn't have his best game. He wasn't awful by any means. I do suspect we'll see the better of our Croatian sensation in the remaining group games. But overall, I'm quite keen to see the rest of the Chelsea contingent across the rest of the group because this is our most stacked representation. So we'll just, apart from the Germany-France game, which we'll touch on. So, yeah, pretty reasonable signs. We'll see. Good stuff, guys. The only thing I really have to add at all is, I mean, yeah, Southgate has some weird selections, but with five subs and the squads being as big as they are and England being as deep as it is, you can kind of get away with using a whole bunch of different players, especially early on. And, you know, worst case scenario, you come third and still advance. So win the first match, get a point in the second match, and you're probably good to go for the knockout round. So there is a sense that if you have a squad like England, maybe use everyone you can and keep guys like Vince Elwell and Reese James fresh for those games that you can't afford to roll the dice with. But we'll see. Group E. Only had Cesar Azmilicueta as a Chelsea player, but he didn't feature for Spain. Spain had about 1 million passes that they weren't able to crack Sweden open with. Is there anything else we can say about that game at all? They had 84% of the ball. I mean, that just, that just tells you everything you need to know. They had 84% of the ball, and they didn't score any goals. So, sorry ball, except with better players, worse players. Was player. Yeah, no, it was an interesting one because there's been a lot of criticism about possession without purpose. But 
and the speed in which Spain's build-up play was being generated. But again, with a, with a more prolific striker up front, they scored two or three goals and all of a sudden that performance has been billed as, look at the great dominance from Spain. They dominated from start to finish, scored two or three goals and completely annihilated Sweden. But I thought Sweden had a few chances themselves, actually. So it's quite funny where even though the natural thought process is the more you dominate the ball, the less likely your team has to score because they don't have the ball. But it's what you do with it, even if you have it only for a limited amount of time. And I thought Sweden, if they're very limited amount of time, actually caused Spain a, Spain a few scares. And I thought Isak there had a really good game for Sweden. I thought had, um, I can't remember who it was that missed it from two yards out, his strike partner, but I thought, geez, that could have been a real headline in itself that they did the old snatch and grab. So, no, look, I'm not from the school of camp where you just hold the ball and hopefully that you nullify the other team because they don't have it and you, you spend their time chasing it. It's really trying to find that balance of using that possession in a purposeful way because sometimes it can actually be counterintuitive to have it too much. So I think, you know, overall, he needs to have that flexibility and that's what Thomas Tuchel brings. There are games where we dominate the ball, we look very strong and really crush the hopes of our, our position. But there's some games where you've got to be smarter and a bit more pragmatic and invite the pressure to open up the space to allow you to use your pace and use the strengths of your team. So I thought Spain were probably a bit too one-dimensional in that sense. Yeah, I, I, sh- I should. I, I think I'm, I'm being a bit unfair to, to Spain, calling them ball and stuff. I mean, I can still call them ball, but they, they created five big chances and they missed all of them. We saw Morata miss what he do what he did. So I I shouldn't be harsh on Spain because really I, I think creating creating a lot of clinical chances is is very good because even when you lose, you know you did everything you could to win. That's why I wasn't that upset about the Aston Villa game on the um championship Sunday because we created seven big chances. I mean, you create seven big chances, you you, you miss six of them. And then you score one goal and you concede and you lose. What, what what more can you do, really? You know, and they they created a lot of chances. And truly, I, when, when you mentioned uh, if they if they had a, a a more clinical striker, they would have or a better finisher rather they would have scored more. I I was forced to check again, and I remember Olsen Olsen stood on his head. Olsen stood on his head for Sweden. He just he just kept preventing them. He, he was not he was not allowing them to to score and that and you know their strikers are not the Lewandowski's and Haaland's of this world. So to be fair to them, they did have a lot of the ball and they did create a lot of chances. You know, it was not to be. Yeah, good stuff, guys. Uh, last up is Group F, which ended just before we started the pod. Germany and France, which have a ton of Chelsea players that could have featured. Team of Werner, Kai Havertz, Antonio Rudiger, and N'Golo Conte with Giroud and Zuma on the bench. Pretty much the story of this game is a lot like Spain and Sweden, but the difference is Max Hummels opened proceedings with an own goal that probably made Jurgi Love question why he brought him back from exile. Uh, he did make a really good tackle later on to kind of save some face, but overall, this was a very similar game. Germany couldn't really get through France. 
if VAR was kinder to France, they probably would have blown Germany away. So what do you guys make of this very huge match and a very, very tight group? Yeah, from a neutral's point of view, this was obviously the game of match day one. And I thought it was quite exciting. It had a, it had a finals feel to it, not the final, but definitely a deeper stage competition, a level of intensity, the quality, the feel for the game. I felt this wasn't one of those earlier games where I felt some, some teams were trying to ease their way into the competition and maybe try to capitalise in games two and three. I felt like this meant a lot to both France and Germany. They really wanted to get on the front foot, particularly with Portugal in mind, given that they had a 3 0 win by a CR7 double earlier against Hungary. So I felt this was a really interesting point that even though France opened the scoring with the Hummel's own goal, I felt that that played into their hands quite well, given that they were then allowed to just sit back absorb pressure, which is, I think, a bit risky anyway, and really look to expose Germany's aging defence and the pace of Kylian Mbappe, which on a couple of occasions, particularly in the second half, they were just narrowly missing that opportunity. And even Benzema had the disallowed goal because it was a correctly ruled out for offside. And the same thing again with his very expertly finished effort into the bottom right corner. So I felt... Even though they're playing a high-risk game with allowing Germany to get that ascendancy and that possession where they had a few moments themselves, in the end, the shops as they blew, it paid off for them. I thought Kante had a really strong game. It only adds to his cause that continue to get clean sheets and to really shut out the dangerous Germany, particularly in that middle channel, because I felt for large parts in that game, he was just screening the back four and really protecting that middle channel and kept the likes of Cruz and Gundogan quiet, which is obviously very difficult in itself. He worked quite well with his midfield partner, Pogba, and, and he also picked and chose his times when to break outside of that middle channel and help his um, team on the flanks as well. So I felt, again, another industrious performance from Kante, and again, they remain undefeated. I was a little bit disappointed that Giroud didn't get a chance to come on. And, of course, I'm a big fan of Kurt Zoom and I would have liked to have seen him play, but in the end it was justified given that they were able to keep that clean sheet and, and limit the amount of Germany's clear-cut chances, including the likes of Kai Havertz, who I thought had a, had a mixed game. He had some important touches and was, was important to help in the build-up. But he did get robbed of possession a few times, a bit too easily. So I think that's something he can work on. Timo Werner, he came on with, what, 20 minutes to go, wherever it was. And he didn't really positively impact the game for me. Not really no fault of his own. He was just failed to get into the game. But I thought Antonio Rudiger at the back, he actually played pretty well. He was up against some world-class strikers. And I thought he didn't do himself any harm. So... Overall, not a bad day for those Blues that could participate. But that's my thoughts. You made a lot of good points about the match. I think I was I was going to say Rudiger didn't have that good a game. But when you consider he's up against Karim Benzema, Kylian Mbappe, like who has a good game against them? Who? No, no one can really have a good game against them. And I think Hormones was just a 
a victim of being a, a last man, a last man defender. I mean, I wrote an article some years ago about the, the cost of last man defending, and that's just it. Because he made the last man tackle, he made the most defensive actions of any center back, I think. But he also was the one who tried to clear that ball and it, it ended up in the back of the net. He's is a brilliant center back, Matsumo Hamos. He's a brilliant center back. I watched a lot of Dortmund and I watched him and he more or less controls the Dortmund defense single-handedly, which, I mean, they, they do consider a lot of goals, but not, not all the center backs at Dortmund are, are of his caliber. So you can understand that. I think Havertz and all the German front trail were absent. They were, but they were not, they were not, they were not really in the game. And that wasn't really their fault because the the France, the French defense and midfield really did everything they could to minimize the effectiveness of, of Germany's attack. So, Kante was very good. Pogba was, I mean, Pogba was putting in defensive contributions. He knew, who knew he could do that? Eh? And Rabia was very good. The, the front centre-backs were, they were clearing everything out. I think Thiago Silva, but in two places, they were, they were brilliant. So I couldn't really blame, I couldn't blame her. But I saw him trying to link up some play and do some things. But when you get only two chances to do that in the whole half, you can't really be judged on that. Really. And then Werner came in, he, I mean, was pushed into a match where he was supposed to battle Kante, Pogba, Rabiot, Kimbempe, and that whole France nightmare. So it's not surprising that Hito wasn't effective. I saw in, in that game why France won the World Cup. They were solid defensively, and in a tournament, you need to be solid defensively. That's that's your first step to even having a chance. You can't afford to try and win every game 4-3 because you will concede the three, but you won't score the four. So they did their jobs and they could have scored a lot more goals. I mean, Benzema's link up was wow. He didn't even need to get on the ball much to link up the play in the final third. The man is brilliant. One touch and he sends Mbappe on his way. He was he was really good. So I think Germany, Germany tried, actually, keeping them out for as long as they did and considering as few as they did. They targeted the center of the, of the German defense. So Rüdiger, they didn't attack Rüdiger's side that often. And Hormuz and I think the right center back took the brunt of the, of the attack. But Kante was, wasn't, uh, he wasn't outstanding. I wouldn't say he was outstanding, but he was, he was very good. And, you know, they didn't really have that much to do. They, they were well-coordinated, the France team, so there wasn't that much defensive actions to do. Because the complete performance has had everything, chances, counter-attacks, goals, last-man tackles, own goals. It's had everything. And Germany were, I wouldn't say they were unlucky because they considered quite a lot of chances, so I wouldn't say they were unlucky. All right, good stuff, guys. That's going to wrap us up for round one of this Euros. We'll be back for the second round to give you some more Chelsea-flavored balanced coverage. Until next time, keep the blue flag flying high.